Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, a podcast all about the North American model of conservation and your chance to dive into conversations about trends, research, and outdoor activities. It's time to get wild with the 2021 Conservation Media Award-winning host, Jason Creighton. AHA is very open to anyone that, that wants to join and is interested in conservation. Uh, and there, there's a tremendous willingness to collaborate with other organizations. Um, my chat, the New York chapter, we have worked with Hunters of Color, the Nature Conservancy. Um, we've worked with Trout Unlimited chapters. Um, and we're one of the things that we discuss in board meetings is, is additional organizations that we can look to have cross collaboration with on various conservation efforts. So. Welcome back to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and this is episode number 140, talking with a fashionably late hunter and conservationist. This week, I'm joined by Gary Mars. Gary grew up in a scouting family. He's been fishing since he was three years old with his dad. After a respite, like many of us, from the outdoor lifestyle to play high school football and attend college and really even get his career started, he reinvigorated his outdoor lifestyle about six years ago. During this time, fishing, hunting, and conservation have become a staple of his life. In this conversation, you're going to hear Gary share his conservation journey, why conservation is such a passion for him, and how being exposed to the outdoors early in life shaped his conservation mindset. He's also going to fill us in on why he loves volunteering with backcountry hunters and anglers, and what his journey has been like so far as, as he terms it, a fashionably late hunter. Now, before we get started, I do want to make a quick correction to what you're about to hear. During the conversation, Gary mentions an article about streambed ownership, and he talks about it being in the Hatch magazine. That was incorrect identification. It's actually in Fly Fisherman magazine. And being the upstanding guy that Gary is, he wanted to make sure he gave credit where credit was due. So if you're interested in reading the article that he mentions, it's in Fly Fisher Magazine, Fly Fisherman Magazine, uh, and about streambed ownership in New York State. Let's get right to the conversation. Welcome back, everyone. As you heard in the intro, joined by Gary Mayers. Jerry, Gary, how are you doing today? I'm pretty good, Jason. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, you know, this is uh, our sort of connection and, and budding friendship that we have here is um, one of the few bright spots of social media. You know, you're you're over <laughs> there. You're over there in, uh, in New York on Long Island. One of those, uh, I mean, what? I'm going to call you a city dweller, right? And I'm over here in the great commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Um, and uh, yet we can still connect and, you know, we connected and we can still um, have good conversations uh, about conservation and hunting and stuff like that. I mean, for all the ills that are social media, here's a success story. Yeah, absolutely. So let's just, let, I want to start with um, something that I mentioned in the intro that uh, you're, as you call it, a fashionably late hunter, which I absolutely love that term. 
that's a great way to put it. Let's start with why you decided to be, yeah, you know, like why you decide to take up the the hunting mantle. Um, so I've, I've pretty much been in the outdoors since I was a kid. Um, I come from a scouting family, so I was fortunate that my dad was always bringing me along on camping trips. He started taking me fishing when I was three years old, uh, and I'd pretty much always been in the woods. There's no hunters in my family. Uh, and when I was about 12, nine or 12, nine, 10, 12 years old, somewhere around there, um, my family purchased a trailer in a campground in the Poconos. Um, like near Bushkill Falls. And there was a lot of hunting that went on up there. And someone that became a huge influence on my life, uh, Ron, and I referenced him sometimes in, in writing or on social media. Um, he was somebody that just, he, he got me interested in hunting just because I was able to, I was able to watch the entire process. He was extremely self-sufficient. He would work pretty much seven days a week for seven to eight months through the year. He would take off the entire summer with the exception of when he was, was on a hunt, he was, he was constantly working and he, I would watch him go. He was able to fill the freezer and he was able to feed himself for, for the year, whatever he was able to legally, whatever he was able to legally take. And, you know, whether it was, he was going after frogs or, uh, whether he was fishing or, or going after whitetail. So I just, honestly, when I was 12 years old, I thought it was super cool. Um, but it's not anything that I wound up getting into until I got much older and I started going back into the outdoors when I was about 32, 33. My daughter's actually walking around in the background. Um, she was about three years old. I wanted to wait until she was a little bit older. I do quite a bit around the house. Um, with my wife and because we both work so I wanted it I didn't want it to be a scenario where it was a massive burden to her so when I first started going back outdoors it was a couple days fishing here and there and then all of a sudden hunting comes into the equation so I had to make sure that that things were set in place but I was super interested in, in getting out there and, and doing the same thing that I saw Ron doing and that was providing for himself and in my case it was providing for myself and my family and I didn't really have the time or opportunity and, until I was much later. And I said that I was kind of late to the party because, you know, every time you hear somebody talking about it a lot of times, if it's something that's in their family tradition, they've been hunting since they're 12 or they're, you know, 18, whatever it is. And, and there I was, I think my first hunting season, I was I turned 36. Yeah. I mean, it, you explained my situation, right? Like by the time you started hunting, um, it would be me now and i've been hunting for oh, 24 years um at this point and honestly probably the only reason why it's 24 years is because when i was a kid in pennsylvania you weren't allowed to start hunting until you were 12 um mm. i i definitely wanted to go much earlier than that i just legally wasn't able to um was it like was it a food thing um you you mentioned providing for your family is it that you want to provide like healthier food for your family or is it that you just want to feel like you're able to bring that extra food to the table as opposed to just going to the grocery store? Yeah. I mean, that's a really good question. There was a, there was a few things um, that came into play. One, um, one, I'm sorry, my daughter's trying to get the iPad from, <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. 
Um, so the, um, sorry, I lost track of that. They're asking me to put in the code too. Um, so essentially, yeah, I mean, it, there was some of it that had to do with the food. So when I went, so basically I was fishing my whole life until I was probably about 16, um, where I was constantly fishing because then high school football picked up and I stopped, um, I wasn't able to really go outdoors as much and then got into college, got into my master's work, got into my career. So I have all this time where it's only maybe two or three days a year where I'm actually fishing and on the water or camping. And when I started going back into the outdoors, um, the people that I was running into, I just felt that they were very complete outdoors men and women, whereas they were able to hunt, they were able to fish, they had woodsmanship. And part of it was I was you know, sitting around and, and talking with these people and, and it was great, but like I I felt a little bit incomplete, like I was lacking certain skills. So part of it was I wanted to be more complete outdoorsman. And then the other part of it was, yes, I did want to be able to partly justify taking time away from the family by saying, yes, I might spend this weekend away, but if I'm fortunate, I can come home with however many pounds of you know, at the very least, free range meat for the family. Um, so th those were some big drivers in the push to go outdoors and start hunting. So when you when you finally made that that decision that I'm going to become a hunter, uh, what was the hardest part about that in the beginning? Um, trying to figure out where that time was going to come from. Um, you know, like I said, at, at that point, so when I was 36, my daughter was, she was only, um, she was six years old. Um, so it, the, I started fishing again when I was probably about 34. And there was essentially that I was fishing for a little bit for like a year or two. And then I had the conversation with my wife that I want to start hunting, but it was figuring out, you know, what happens in place. So it was, you know, in combination with, you know, my day job, it's like, okay, well, I need to get these chores done for the weekend. I need to make sure that we don't have appointments on the weekend or a sporting event or whatever it is. So initially it was just trying to kind of get a workflow where we were able to set up that I could have time outdoors without negatively impacting my family. Um, and, you know, not, now, like I said, I'm in going into my fourth hunting season and we do have a bit of a, a flow. Things are a little bit easier for my wife. Both of my kids are older. My son is going to be five in January. He was a baby um, when all of this started. So that honestly was probably the biggest thing. And, and the original timeline that we had was that I was going to start taking my hunter safety courses and the bow courses and then I was, I had planned on being outdoors within like two seasons, whatever it was. I actually thought that last year was going to be my first season, but somebody had gifted venison to me and I started doing a little bit of venison diplomacy. And the last thing that I made my wife was a dish out of the mediator cookbook was the, it was venison backstrap with uh, balsamic glaze mm, and cauliflower puree. Yep. And that was in, January that was actually so I worked for the government that was during the government shutdown and I was doing a lot of cooking so my wife would come home and there were meals ready for her and when I put that meal in front of her and she had it she said this is deer and I said yeah she goes you can start hunting next year <laughs> so I was like I was like all right unfortunately I haven't brought anything home I'm very lucky that I'm halfway decent fisherman so she gets uh, walleye but 
Yeah, I mean, I can tell by the just the tone of your voice and and explaining what the hardest part was. Like, you're not going to put yourself in a position um, where you're going to neglect your family just to go outdoors. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm assuming that you had, and as you just said, like you had your wife's blessing to go out, right? And um, Mm -hmm. to be able to spend this time. Has there once you started spending some of that time? Did you have any pushback? Like, was there any like, hey, um, that this is too much or we need to readjust our sort of like unofficial agreement? Yeah, um, you know, it was so my wife would always say that she never really wanted to say no to me. And she was always kind of more or less hoping that I would not take advantage of the situation. Um, And I really tried, tried not to. So we try to make it that I'm never hunting or fishing two, two weeks in a row. I always try to have at least one week in between so that if I didn't get to something, you know, the one week I'm getting into it the next week. Um, typically most of the pushback would come if I was, you know, at hunting camp or if I was fishing, whatever the case was. And then um, if there was any issues at home, you know, if something happened with my daughter or if there was something that, you know, needed a repair while I was away, there was often at that point, when I would get home, it wasn't like I wasn't, you know, I wasn't like in trouble or anything, but my wife was understandably frustrated and stressed out. And then that comes like, well, maybe you need to not go fishing the next weekend so that we can do this. So there was pushback, you know, I would get frustrated if, if she had said yes, but then I would come home and it would almost be like this resentment that I had gone. But at the same time, she's at home taking care of both of our kids, taking care of the house, doing whatever has to be done. Um, you know, and I'm sure, you know, you could tell your wife that she should go out with the girls as much as you want or take a girl's weekend. And, you know, if they have working mom guilt or whatever it is, you know, they may not be so ready to do that. So, um, you know, it's not like they're just going to pick up and walk away. That's, that's not the case for everyone, obviously. And it might be a generalization, but that is certainly the case in my home. So even if I try to tell my wife, you know, thanks for doing all of this, take a break. She's more willing to do it now that the kids are older. Um, but it was difficult early on. So it wasn't like there was even this even exchange of time away to decompress and be by yourself and, you know, just have that opportunity to, to reset. Yeah. I mean, the idea of, you know, sort of, how do I want to put this? Uh, the idea of balancing time between family Mm -hmm. and hunting, I feel like is something that a lot of people, struggle with or at least have to address you know and you know yes i came from a hunting family um it was understood in my family that when it was hunting season the guys went to camp every weekend that's just sort of what we did that that was the tone for the family um Mm. but my wife didn't come from a hunting family right so i had a little bit of an adjustment period with just understanding what the expectations were from my wife when we first started dating, uh, you know, and I set the bar high uh, as far as yeah. what the expectation would be, which is sort of funny because, um, you know, I, I hunted from the time I was 12 until I was 18 a lot. Um, even through high school, I would take time away from sports to do a lot of hunting. But when I got to college and then, you know, got in my early stages of my career, it was very much limited, right? Like I sort of, um, I was coaching, I was, I was playing a college sport. So I was spending a lot of time doing that kind of stuff. And um, I had just recently stopped coaching uh, high school sport, uh, high school baseball, whenever I met my wife. 
and the funny story from that 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 she we both tell is that uh one of our early dates we went to phipps conservatory uh in pittsburgh and uh, they have awesome plants you know exotic plants and everything and i had driven and we're walking back to my truck afterwards and she saw you know a, a bow hunting sticker on the back of my window and she just said like oh do you hunt you know and i said yeah i, I dabble and i i hunt a little bit and um that was you know, all of a sudden the first season that I had like a lot of time, I didn't have to coach baseball in the fall. So yep. I was hunting every Saturday. I was hunting three or four days during the week, you know, after work and all this different stuff. And she was like, I thought you said you just hunted a little bit, you know? <laughs> so yep. I, I set that expectation really high. Um, and there were some, you know, moments of frustration, I think, like, as you mentioned from both sides, right? Like yep. I'm not, she, I'm sure felt like I should want to spend more time with her. It's not that I didn't want to spend time with her. Um, if she, I've invited her multiple times. If she ever wants to come sit in the deer stand with me, like, absolutely, let's go together, right? That would be perfect for me, you know, if we yep. could hunt together, uh, spend time together and I get to hunt, like, that's perfect, um, you know. And it's been a little bit of trial and error figuring out for us. And then it's been now amplified now that we have a 14 month old son. Yep. Um, you know, trying to to sort of juggle the responsibility of being a husband, you know, being an employee, being a father now, and then also trying to hunt as well. Um, you know, it it's different. Um, and honestly, I feel that pull a little bit too. Like there's there's been some times that you know, I could have gone hunting or, or could have gone to camp. And I thought, you know what, I'm not going to because I'm going to stay home. I'm going to spend time with my son, that kind of stuff. So there it, it's that sort of push and pull. And, and, you know, hopefully if everything works out perfectly, maybe he's coming with me, you know, to the stand in a couple of years yep. and, and then starts wanting to hunt on his own. Not that I'm going to push it on him, right. If he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to, but um, obviously that would be great. Uh, you know, one of the things that that we've talked about, you and I, and and sort of went back and forth a lot about is the idea of of conservation, right? And and giving back. Yep. I know you're you are very big into you know establishing conservation and um, basing some of your opinions on certain things on what's best, you know, in the field of conservation. I mean, why is that something that was sort of instilled upon you young whenever you were you know growing up in that scout family or is that something that you developed sort of later in life uh so it's actually both it's kind of been refined later in life um <clears throat> through the scouting so one of the things is you know now we call it leave no trace um that was something so my grandfather was the scoutmaster. when we were in a campsite that campsite needed to be cleaner than it was when we arrived there um, so that was one of the things he stressed. My dad was one of, I mean, at least that I was aware of, one of the first people that I saw really do a lot of catch and release or catch, photograph and release. Um, and he was not against keeping, you know, we would, when we had the trailer, he was very happy to keep a string or a bass and bring them home and we would eat them. Um, and it, it was funny because he would keep the bigger ones. The smaller ones would get thrown back to grow up. Right. And where I talk about having everything be refined is as I got older and I started fishing more and more, conservation became increasingly important to me because I want my children to be able to enjoy this. I want my children to have a place to go fishing. They want them to have a place to go hunting, public spaces to enjoy. Um, and it was kind of funny because, you know, you go from 
keeping the bigger fish and now like occasionally i'll look at pictures of large fish that i kept when i was younger and like <laughs> makes me a little sick to my because i'm like oh my god egg production is exponential for so many species of fish so you know if you're keeping that three and four pounder you're taking out significantly more eggs than maybe from one of those 12 to 14 inches so now if i am keeping fish they're generally on the lower end of, of what's legal to be kept so i've kind of made that shift but then i go into the hunting world and now i have this ethos with how I'm going to address what I'm fishing and what, what I want to keep. And then you go into the hunting world and then I start coming across this idea of letting the small bucks pass and only going after big bucks. And I'm like, wait, why are we doing that? So like, there's this just kind of sorting through everything and really just what it comes down to is, you know, obviously follow whatever your wildlife agency is recommending because it's the law. And in theory, they have scientists that have, you know, said that this is best, but also, you know, have an understanding, you know, of your area, have an understanding of what is best for that ecosystem. Um, and it's just, if we want to keep enjoying these ecosystems in these places, we, we can't take everything, you know, the, the outdoors can provide for us, but it isn't a grocery store and the resources are not unlimited. And if we want our children and our grandchildren to enjoy it, we have to think about that. Um, I'm pretty sure that there, I, I don't know what tribe it is, but I believe that there is an indigenous tribe where they say every decision you make, think about that impact that it will have on seven generations. You know, that's pretty meaningful. You know, we all hear the, the concepts about, you know, those in the womb of time, you know, the Theodore Roosevelt quotes, but, but it's very real. Like we need to consider these things when we're outdoors. Yeah. You know, I, I've been, I was introduced to a concept of sort of like phases of a hunter, um, and it's something that was widely talked about a couple years ago. Um, it's not as trendy to talk about it now, but you know, the, the idea that every hunter sort of goes through these phases where they start with really almost like a bloodlust, like you just, you want to kill, mm -hmm. you know, every deer that you see type thing. Um, and then it grows into all of a sudden, like, I'm not going to kill every deer. Uh, because I want to kill bigger deer every deer I want I want a bigger one and then eventually it like rolls into well maybe not it's not the biggest deer but it's the more most challenging deer that you could find and then eventually you know towards the end it ends up being you know you're just happy to be out there and you'd rather watch the deer than maybe take one um, part of that I feel like probably has something to do with just being older and maybe not wanting knowing that there's a lot of work that comes after <laughs> after you shoot a deer um, yep. and you just hey uh, it's easier to walk out of here without that deer. <laughs> it is, yep. um, you know, you just by nature of, of starting hunting later, um, you sort of skipped that like some of those phases. Yeah. I mean, was that a conscious decision for you before you ever went out or was that something that, um, that you feel like the the trend of of hunting media now just instilled upon you yeah i mean hunting media is definitely is definitely interesting so like when i came in so when i came in, so like i said you know ron was the individual that i knew big influence on my life when i was younger he was that first step and then like i said when i started fishing some of my friends were also hunters they started becoming an influence and it's the same time that i discovered meat eater so i have all of these different things that are that are starting to come into play and in developing my outlook on hunting and meat eater does 
a lot of public land hunts and then those same friends were always talking about like oh you need to go after public land bucks you need to go after this you need to go after that pass on those pass on this so it was all it it was one of those things where it's like it's a lot to try to digest and, and figure out where it is and the location that i live in on long island we have so many deer that they want you to basically if you get a doe you report that you are getting a DMP the next day. You're getting another doe permit like right away. They want you to be able to take as many as you can get because we're so overpopulated. We have something like 40,000 new cases of tick-borne disease every year because it's so overgrown um, or it's so overpopulated with deer on our, on our east end. Um, but then you go other places where that population density just isn't there. So to what I was saying before, like you have to be able to apply, you know, your different strategies and ethos to what's best for that area. As far as I also have a, I'm in on a lease with two of my friends, they own property and they lease the surrounding area. The first thing I asked them is, you know, how do, how do you feel about on, on your property? How do you feel about the taking of does during bow season? Um, There is an antler restriction. There has to be at least three antlers one inch on one side so you know right off the bat we know that we're looking at a five or six point um, buck but i'm like you know how do you are you looking at particular age classes of deer versus just what's in the antlers so yeah i mean that does it does come into play and i am at the point where i'm pretty much anything that is legal and ethical to take i am looking to take it because i do want to have something in the in the freezer it's been four seasons like i said i'm 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 not a very good hunter so far you know i'm making a lot of mistakes but i'm trying to learn from every one of them um but yeah i mean that definitely comes into play in social media you know obviously there's you know i i never thought that i would live in a world where there was a legitimate term antler shaming because they're making fun of a kid that took took a spike buck and it's like are, are you kidding me you know it's he did it legally leave him alone so yeah, I mean, I'm a couple things with to unpack there for me. Um, one, <laughs> one, I am right there with you. Whatever's best for that area, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, is what is what I would encourage everyone to pursue. Um, you know, for us on our family property, it's you know we need we apply every year for extra doe tags for the property because there's it's just there's too many deer um mm. for the habitat to support in that area which is crazy because just like 20 or so miles away my friend's property that's right up against the Allegheny national forest um that like they don't shoot many doe because there's the population is just different there you know yep. um you know but when when it comes to antler shaming i mean I look at that and it's like, if it's legal, who cares, right? If it's legal, mm-hmm. do what's best um, for, you know, do what you feel is best. Um, I also try to, you know, in person, not on the internet, because things can can take such a, diff- people read different words differently, right? When they're, yeah. whenever you can't get your tone across. But in person, you know, I, I try to encourage people to look at maybe, passing younger deer for more mature deer not for antler size um just for herd health overall herd health uh is typically the reason 
I bring up for that. And, you know, just to encourage to look into it, not that they should or shouldn't, you know, everyone, again, if you're doing it legally, everyone's going to do stuff a little bit differently. Um, and that's okay. Uh, the last thing I want to say is, I hope you don't take this the wrong way. But I am glad that it has taken you a little bit of time before <laughs> you shot your first deer. Uh, I, a lot of people that I have met over the years, um, that think they want to get into hunting, uh, will get into it and quit after a year because they didn't realize that it was difficult, right? Because the yeah. deer that they are used to seeing are the ones that show up in their backyard every day. Um, how hard would it be to, to kill an animal that you see every day in your backyard? Um, but that's not also not necessarily where you hunt either. So it's a lot more difficult. And I guarantee you that when you shoot that first deer and you, you have that, that first meal from that deer, it's going to taste better than any other meal that you've had just because you'll be remembering like all four or five years of hunting that, that you've gone through, right? You'll remember all those hunts, not just that one singular one. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I didn't take that the wrong way at all. It's, you know, it is definitely that reward is definitely hopefully going to be very sweet when it happens. And it's, and it's not a case that I can't find deer. I'm actually pretty good at finding them and being in the right place. My execution though, of, of actually you know getting them within range or whatever is lack like there was literally one day where i bumped nine deer while i was still hunting and it's just like i see a lot of white milkshakes you know all over the yard and um there is an one day where I'm, I'm slowly walking through um a bit of forest that we have out here on the island and i am pretty sure that i smell deer urine and i feel like i there's i know that there's something around and i've stopped walking and I'm standing in the trail for five minutes and I'm looking around and I'm like, no, I'll, like I'm just an idiot standing here. I take one more step and there's now a deer stomping at me because it was hidden perfectly behind a tree. And there was another time where I, I was scouting my way out. Um, there wound up being this whole thing where my first hunting trip, I set my blind up in on public land and I didn't realize that on the other side of that private property, was a boy scout camp and they were having like their morning jamboree so like they're all singing songs and i'm just like like it was just it was one of those things where it's like all right i'm just going to try to find a better way in and out of here it took me a really long time to get in and i'm walking past and i hear like a snort and i look back and there's just a big doe bedded within 10 feet of me and like i just i walked right past her and you know very quickly she was she was out of my range um but like a lot of stuff like <clears throat> excuse me a lot of stuff like that <laughs> seems to happen to me and it's just because i have to keep getting better and better i have to remind myself to take time i have to remind you know it's it's one of those things where you, you just have to keep your eyes open keep your ears open and every every mistake i get a little bit better um I'll tell you briefly one of my last experiences where it's like, of course, only me. Um, I make a decision on the private property that we hunt that I'm going to leave the tree stand early and I'm going to hunt out of this front field that they have. Because every every night we come back, there's deer in the field. And I'm like, why aren't we sitting in the field? And they're like, well, you can. You know, we never really thought to do it. They're always in the tree stands. So I go out to the field and in the field we have uh, basically like we have a target. So I'm sitting by, you know, behind the, the target, not right behind it, but I'm sitting behind it so that if I had, if a deer came out of this thicket, I would have like a 20 to 25 yard broadside shot on them. 
and I'm starting to hear the rustling of the thicket, a wind gust comes along and knocks the head off of the decoy and the deer just go flying back in the woods. And I'm like, who, like, of course they're running away. The head just flew off this decoy. And I'm just like, like, and they were coming out. Like I saw like a nose and I was just like, oh, only me, man. It was brutal. <laughs> yeah. But so. I mean, I, I yeah, every time something, and, and like, that's the thing. I've, I've, this would be my 24th season uh, of hunting. I mean, there's been so many instances of similar things for me right you're you're seeing it all in the very beginning and you're saying like yeah. only me um you know i've had <laughs> i remember when i was young in a tree stand and a doe walked out and i drew back and my arrow fell right off the string right <laughs> ding 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 like i swear hit every rung of the ladder on the way down and it was and she she jumped a little and then looked and just stared at me I tried to knock another arrow. And as soon as I drew back, she ran away. And it's like, seriously, only me, right? Like that's, that's only going to happen to you. Um, you know, but I'm glad to see that you're taking it in stride in a positive way where it's like, you're learning like, okay, this wasn't quite right. Right. Like I did this wrong. Let's learn from it. And, and let's try to get better because that's the only way to truly get better at hunting. You know, I was fortunate that I had three, people in my family that I went hunting with and were able to, you know, show me the ropes and, and teach mm. me this stuff as I went along. Um, that's harder to do as an adult, right. Um, to have that mentor that's, that's going to take you out, um, and actually like sit with you and like actually help you hunt, not just say, Hey, there's a tree stand you can hunt in, like go over there. We see deer over there. So I want to talk about BHA because I know you're a big uh, supporter of backcountry hunters and anglers. What is it about BHA that draws you in that causes you to say, I want to give back with, with this organization? Um, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with, so it's a public land advocacy group and there is just their outlook is a democratization of the ability to be outdoors. You know, if, if you are protecting public lands, those are for everyone. Every one of us owns those public lands. And if you have a group that's fighting for that, they're literally fighting for everyone. Um, so I, I really appreciate that. And then just in general, there's a level of inclusivity with the BHA membership that I find that I don't necessarily find with every other group, not that other groups aren't, aren't open, but, BHA is very open to anyone that that wants to join and is interested in conservation. Uh, and there there's a tremendous willingness to collaborate with other organizations. Um, my chat, the New York chapter, we have worked with Hunters of Color, the Nature Conservancy. Um, we've worked with Trout Unlimited chapters, um, and we're one of the things that we discuss in board meetings is is additional organizations that we can look to have cross collaboration with on various conservation efforts. So, I, you know, I think when you put all of those things together, you, you have a group that has a tremendous amount of energy. There's a lot of diversity. There's a lot of perspectives and they're fighting for all of us. They're not fighting for one particular thing. They're fighting for the environment. They're fighting for the outdoors. All right. You mentioned perspectives. I'm going to put you on the spot and ask for your perspective on something that um, is a little bit of a controversial topic. Out West, uh, we have a lot of public land 
Um, mm-hmm. And we have a lot of landlocked public land, right? So public land that you can't access unless you would trespass on public property or private property that surrounds it. Uh, there, there's a, in the, I guess, sort of hunting, a, hunting access space, there's um, a, a pretty well-known uh, court case that just finished up. And uh, yep. now there's civil lawsuit. Some hunters that crossed from, uh, they did what's called a corner crossing. So picture uh, for everyone listening, if you're not aware of this picture, like a checkerboard, uh, all the black squares are private, all the red squares are public. And, you know, in that corner where it meets, uh, where you have, you know, two corners of public and two corners of private meeting, uh, you know, crossing by taking a, your one foot, you know, you have one foot in one set of public and one foot in another set of public, uh, and you just walk across there. Um, <laughs> theoretically, that's illegal, right? Because that point is so, uh, in, it goes down to infant, infinity. Um, and theoretically, the uh, landowners of those private own the air above it. So you can't, your shoulders would be crossing through the air of that private property. Um, my question to put you on the spot is what do you think about corner crossing? Should it be legal or should it be illegal? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's definitely, uh, that's definitely a difficult question because ultimately we have to come to a, everything's about compromise. So we have to be in a place where we're respecting the rights of the private property owner while at the same time allowing people access to public lands and i mean the description of a checkerboard is is very apt it's just very interesting to see all of this public land but the only way to access it in theory would be to like drop in from a helicopter um you know i it's one of those things where you could try to reach out to the landowners if you want to make the crossing i think that there i think in the example you're talking about or i think there is an example of where they they talked about the possibility of I think a ladder was fashioned yeah, to so not it, actually step on the property <laughs> and they're suing over ownership of the air. Um, yeah. I think that's 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 a bit much. Um, you know, I think if we have more, I think if there's more logical conversations. I mean, I'd like to see it allowable. Um, New York State has things called rights of passage, but the private landowner is giving their permission for you to walk through those areas now there's a couple of times where i have attempted to use those use those rites of passage and i don't know if it's a new homeowner or whatever the case is but it's blocked off and to me it's not worth the hassle of of getting in trouble just to you know express my right to be on the public land so I, i kind of turn around but i mean i i'd like to see it be allowed that's that's me personally i'm not making a statement for bha one of the issues that we're dealing with in new york is ownership over stream beds and we have particularly so on the east branch of the delaware river uh, the landowners on the shores are claiming ownership over the stream bed and they're essentially trying to keep anglers off the river um so there's and there's different cases that date back to the to the late 1700s and 1800s and different treaties that get thrown around there was a really good article by um bo beasley um i think it was in hatch magazine 
that it, that it was published, but he lays out all the arguments and, it, and it's an ongoing fight. And I think that this is something that New York is potentially going to have to deal with um, uh, increasingly, because if there's success in these landowners arguing that they also own the river bottom, you know, how else are landowners going to try, try to apply those rulings to protect their private property and basically keep people away. And I understand you don't, you don't want to necessarily, you want, you need people to respect the public land and the private property. I don't like it when people walk across my lawn, you know, so, so I get that. And when you have hundreds of acres, it, it's, it's hard to police that. So hopefully everyone's respecting rights, but we can't necessarily, you know, the rights of the private landowner and, and respecting the, just the outdoor environment, but you can't always count on that. So it, it's, it is, it's a really difficult question. I mean, I'd like to see it, but there also needs to be responsibility. You need to not, you need to leave no trace when you're, when you're going through those areas. Yeah. That concept of, you know, um, ownership with, with, you know, water, um, is interesting in Pennsylvania because, it, you know, and this is something that I, I wasn't aware of it. You hear the arguments back and forth. Um, the, you know, the landowners say that they own the stream, um, mm -hmm. fishermen, you know, they, it's what do you mean? I'm walking down the middle. I can, you know, or, or I'm walking, you know, I'm not walking on your property. I'm walking just inside the bank. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, it's water. How can you own it? Um, it but it actually, it, it, it became sort of really came to light sort of for a lot of people. Uh, we have a lot of drilling and fracking that's going on that needs a lot of water. Um, and landowners were selling the water to these drilling companies from their stream beds. And it was like, wait a minute, how, do, how can you do that? Well, it turns out when you look way back, you know, hundreds of years ago, um, landowners own to the middle of that stream, if that stream is the boundary, um, or the whole stream, if it's when, when it's on their property, unless it's navigable water, it has to be yep. declared navigable. Um, so all of a sudden, as I'm driving around and I see, you know, certain streams that people would, you know, trout fish in and it's like, yeah, that's not navigable. Like, well, you know, there's a definition there. So it's like, yeah, that person can, they're in their legal right to string their chain across that stream with a no trespassing sign and, and kick people off that stream. And it's something that is, um, a little shocking to a lot of fishermen when they first realized that that's, yep. that's a, that's a rule. Um, going back to that corner crossing, you're right. That was there. A ladder was fashioned. So um, yeah. it, it was, it was like a two or three year saga. I guess it was a two year saga of this. Um, the first year the hunters went, uh, they're out of state hunters in Wyoming. Um, they crossed game warden was called game warden said, no, you're good. You can do that. So um, maybe it was a three year. So, cause the next year, or maybe when they were scouting, they saw that, um, two no trespassing signs have been placed on the private at the corner with a chain in between. Uh, the guy decided to make his own ladder. He's a fence builder, so made his own ladder that he could pack in, uh, made a ladder to go over the chain, climbed up over, took the ladder with him, did the same thing to come back out. Um, so it just, it's just wild, um, the whole thing. I, yeah, I mean, the, uh, that sheriff, that law enforcement officer was waiting for him to arrest him that had said previously that he wasn't breaking any laws, but um, apparently the landowner, you know, had a lot of connections and, and yeah. used them to enforce his, uh, his private, his private property rights. So, um, but yeah, so that, I mean, I was not upset about the outcome of the case. No, I, I mean, you know, for, if, since I put you on the spot, I'll say mine, like I'm okay. Uh, 
as a landowner uh, here in the East, like I'm actually okay with saying that corner crossing is illegal. But if we're going to say that, then we need to have um, a better incentive program to have to incentivize private property owners to allow access to provide mm -hmm. a right of way in between these checkerboard corners of public land. Um, because as what's coming out in the civil case now, uh, they're claiming $7 million worth of damage for their shoulders passing yeah. through <laughs> the air. Uh, basically what they're doing is they're saying the quiet part out loud that the value of that ranch, that private property is decreased because the public is allowed to go onto the public land behind yep. their property. Um, which is absolutely ridiculous, right? Like, so the idea would be that the guy would sell his ranch and he could get more for it because, yeah, this is public, but no one else is allowed on there. So it's essentially free private land. Yep. Yeah. 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 I mean, that goes back to before with what I was saying, where, you know, there, everything needs to be, there needs to be compromise, um, you know, and we, and we need private landowners on board with conservation because you can do conservation all you want on public land. But if private landowners aren't incentivized to take steps that are positive for conservation, it's, it's not going to work. Um, so we do need to work with private landowners and, you know, it's just, like I said, I mean, I'd like to see people be able to have access. I'd like to see their, like you were saying, some kind of incentive to allow it. Um, you know, again, that's not me speaking for BHA. That's, that's just personally, you know, the, the way I feel, hopefully, hopefully we look at on X or go hunt or whatever it is, uh, you know, 10 years from now, and it doesn't look so much like a checkerboard, um, you know, but we'll, we'll see where all it goes. It's definitely an interesting case. Yeah. Hey, uh, Gary, we're run up on the end of time here. Um, I just want, my last question is going to be, um, what is your favorite event that BHA puts on that, that you've been to? So I was part of the planning team for muster in the mountains. Um, that was held in 2021 in, uh, at Westfield brewing. Um, that was just an absolute blast. Um, from from meeting Lan Tawny, um, and, you know, meeting just a lot of people that love conservation. There's there's many people. When I went home from that um, experience, there's many people that I'm now friends with on social media that that I still talk to. Um, you know, include Don Rank and his wife. I met them there. Um, so you know, it, it just that was that was one of the best experiences um, I've had just in general. I would say in conservation. Um, BHA also does a lot of pint nights um, where they're encouraging people to just basically come talk conservation, hunting, fishing, learn more about public lands. Um, again, it's very open and inclusive. And very recently, so we have a, a board member in New York, um, Brandon Dale, and he is also strongly affiliated with uh, Hunters of Color. And he's, uh, he's been an absolute rock star in helping to organize and, and set up events where we're just bringing in much more diverse crowds. So from there was recently an event that was held in Brooklyn at Gotham Archery, and it was an archery event. And like we, I was talking about before, if you're if you have a more diverse crowd, you're bringing in more perspectives. And you, frankly, you just you have more people that want to be part of the outdoors and conservation. I think that's that's great. We, we need that. Um, so there's, there's uh, other events that are upcoming. Um, there's going to be one in November 
where it's going to be a collaboration between Hunters of Color, the Nature Conservancy, and BHA, where it's going to be taking out fashionably late hunters. Um, and we've that's happened a few times. I haven't been a part of that. I may be part of the one that's coming up in November. Um, to be honest, I have sleep apnea, so it, it minimizes my ability to be in the, the backwoods if I don't have a, a somewhere I could put an electrical cord in. Um, when we were actually at Muster in the Mountains, I slept on the owner's mother's property, and they ran an extension cord out of her window for me to sleep in my RAV4. So, I mean, I, I, I felt better because I was taking a I was taking a bath in the stream, you know, at, at 2 a.m. So I, I feel like I, you know, upped my um, outdoor credibility. But um, <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, there's a, there's just there's always something going on. Um, there's quite a bit that goes on with BHA. Yeah, I, that's one of the things that I love about BHA is the idea of uh, bringing people together surrounding what um, makes us the same. And so we don't focus on the things that might make us different right political views or any of that stuff like it's just hey we all enjoy conservation we enjoy being outdoors let's you know hang out and talk about that stuff um that's yep. that's definitely the the big pull from me uh to be a member and and try to highlight that organization as you know a quality organization that's out there uh gary thanks for joining me i really appreciate this uh good luck this year i have i felt some very good vibes in this conversation that i think uh are going to translate to a successful year for you I appreciate that. I'm definitely glad to be on it. Yeah, I'm hoping that conservation karma makes its way to my uh, bow. I named my bow Egret, um, and she's been pretty quiet. So, um, hope, hope, hopefully, she'll uh, she'll get something. She'll take something down. Um, if nothing else, like I said, I'll I'll have some walleye in the future. I hope maybe some uh, maybe some big pickerel. I like to pickle those bad boys. Hey, good luck to you. And um, like I said, I, I I feel some good vibes coming your way. Thank you. You too, brother. And that'll do it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining me this week. I want to thank Gary for coming on. I know this is, uh, this being released the day after Thanksgiving is uh, not necessarily always the best time to be listening to a podcast. A lot of people are busy, but Maybe you were driving around, maybe you were hanging some Christmas lights, uh, maybe you were sitting in a tree stand, uh, you know, this weekend. Uh, I really appreciate you listening. I know I will be spending my time with the Pennsylvania Deer Rifle Opener uh, tomorrow, if you're listening to this on the day that that uh, the episode drops. I'll be in the woods, hopefully, uh, putting a couple tags on ears this weekend uh, to do what I couldn't do this archery season, but that's why they call it hunting and not getting Have a happy holiday season, everyone, and uh, until next time, get outside, take someone with you, and as always, stay wild.